Good morning. It is a blessing and a joy to be here. There's a lot of sickness going around. We have uh, some people not, not with us, but it is, it is a joy to be together as a family, to be able to spend time in God's Word together. Uh, from, from a young age, I was taught the concept of getting my parents' permission to do something. Um, you know, can I go to the, the park across the street to, to play? Or can I go over to my neighbor's house? Or can I have a snack? Uh, or can I watch the show on TV? You know, obedience to my parents was about more than obeying specific instructions and commands. In many cases, uh, it was about having their permission or approval to act. Uh, and the, the dynamics of that changed over time as my parents tried to teach me, and in this case, to become more independent. I, I was given more freedoms. I was still fully under my parents' authority, but I could make a lot more decisions on my own without getting explicit permission from them uh, or spoken permission. I, I, I could raid the fridge and get my own snack, right? Or, or I could surf the channels on TV, or I could go riding my bike and not tell them precisely where I was going in the neighborhood. Um, there are a lot more implied permissions as they tried to, to help me uh, become more independent. I, I start uh, with, with that uh, illustration to get us thinking a little bit about the concept of permission, uh, the concept of authority. And I want us to ask the question today, do we need God's permission? Uh, like my relationship with my parents early on, obedience to God is not just about obeying specific instructions and commands. In many areas, it's about having his permission, his approval to act, acting upon his authority. Uh, but to what extent do we need his permission? Is my relationship with God more like Ruby's relationship with, with Aaron and I? Uh, you know, Ruby needs permission to, to get a snack. Uh, or to get up out of bed at night, right? Or, or is my relationship with God more like, say, Christopher's relationship with Carl and Patricia? Uh, you know, he probably doesn't need permission to get up out of bed at night or, or get a snack, uh, uh, in most cases, I assume. Um, you know, he might need permission to take the driver's seat in the car, right? Um, what extent do we need permission from the Lord? To what extent do we have implied permissions and freedoms? And to what extent do we need explicit or spoken permission to act? Um, I, I hope to spend maybe two lessons uh, talking about this concept of permission or authority from the scripture. And I think a, a good place to start is, is by making the point that uh, authority, respect for God's authority, is central to the gospel message. Um, talking about authority or permission uh, should not be a, a taboo topic. Uh, it shouldn't be something that we view as, well, that's just kind of the hobby horse of the ultra-conservative and traditional-minded uh, brethren. Uh, authority is not a secondary or inconsequential topic when it comes to the scriptures. Uh, it's not something on the periphery. It's something that is central even to the gospel itself, emphasized again and again. In Isaiah 52, and in verse 7, uh, this language not, might sound familiar because it's quoted in the New Testament and talking about the gospel and the proclaiming of the gospel. Isaiah 52 and verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, or gospel, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, 
your God reigns. What's the message of the gospel? What's the good news? Well, it's a message of peace. It's a message of happiness. It's a message of salvation. But when it's actually put into words, what is the message? Your God reigns. The reign of God, the fact that Jesus is king, his absolute authority, that's the foundation of the gospel. Uh, There's no good news of salvation without the kingship of Jesus. And when Jesus comes on the scene and starts proclaiming the gospel, do you remember in uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, the first words that we see Jesus proclaiming is repent for the kingdom or kingship, uh, the dominion of, of heaven is at hand. Uh, Matthew 4 and verse 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. This idea of authority, of God reigning, Jesus reigning as Christ, as the anointed one, the king, is central to the gospel. There is no gospel without authority. Jesus' authority as king also means his authority to forgive. His authority to save, his authority to redeem and reconcile us to God. Uh, and so it is in the message that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is king, that we find this good news of salvation, of peace, of hope. Uh, Matthew 28, when Jesus sends his disciples out on the Great Commission, do you remember what he tells them to preach? Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How does he summarize the gospel message that they were to preach there? Well, first of all, he gives them a foundation for the gospel. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim the message of the king. I am king, absolute king, in all authority. Uh, Therefore, go and make kingdom citizens. Make disciples. And the outworking of that is that you're going to teach them to obey all that I'm commanding. you. And so you see how the gospel message was always founded on this idea of the authority of Jesus Christ. uh, The authority of of God uh, reigning. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, you remember that the climax of Peter's sermon, Acts 2 and verse 36, says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is master. Jesus is king, Christ, anointed one. Uh, And that is the, the focal point of the gospel. The message of salvation is presented as as subordinate or dependent upon the fact that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Lord. And that is how we can have this hope of salvation, because God reigns, because Jesus has the authority, the power to bring us that salvation. Um, And so there are many other central ideas to the gospel. We could emphasize uh, faith and and grace and and love and see how these are are central to the idea of the, the good news. But But what I hope we can see is that authority deserves to be within that same category. (laughs) That that you don't have the gospel, you don't have the good news without the authority uh, of the kingship of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's something we need to teach on. It's something that we need to think deeply about. It's not something that we should see as, as secondary, um, something um, uh, peripheral to the gospel. And we need to recognize that no aspect of our lives is lived outside or beyond the authority of Jesus Christ, beyond the authority of God. Matthew 28 that we read earlier says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Jesus is not our senator. He's not our congressman. He's not our representative. Uh, he's not even our, our president. Um, this is not a representative democracy or even a constitutional monarchy where Jesus kind of ha has the title of king but has no true governing power. This is an absolute monarchy. Jesus is a benevolent dictator. He has all authority. Um, and so we need to fully submit to him. Colossians 3 and verse 17, as Christopher read for us a moment ago, says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, what, every word you speak, every act you engage in, uh, should be according to the authority, according to the name or the will of Jesus Christ and unto his glory. Nothing that we do is according to our own name or, or the name of any other earthly figure or movement. Our, our allegiance needs to solely be to Jesus Christ. And we need to submit every aspect of our lives to his kingship. And you see this even later in Colossians 3, uh, verse 23 and 24. Um, as he's talking to, to bond servants, he says, Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Even when we're serving some other you know, earthly authority, the, the governing authorities, our, our boss at work, our parents, uh, church leadership, ultimately... Any authority that, that we are serving, we're ultimately serving the ultimate authority of Christ. He has all authority. And so the, the church services are not the only part of our lives that are lived in service to Jesus Christ. Uh, our entire lives are service to Jesus. There is no time, no situation that we are outside of his authority. But understanding that... Uh, we need to recognize that not all authority must be specifically or explicitly communicated. And then this gets back to the illustration that we began the lesson with, talking about children's submission to their parents' authority. Many times there are often implied permissions in uh, a relationship like that. And, and they may differ based on our relationship to the individual in the position of authority. Uh, right now, Ruby would still need our permission to open the refrigerator or the pantry and, and get herself uh, a snack. Christopher, on the other hand, probably doesn't need that same type of permission uh, from, from his parents. And it's, it's not that he's living any less under the authority of his parents, right? Um, it's not that he owns all that food in that refrigerator and it belongs to him. Uh, but there are some implied permissions there for him uh, where uh, in Ruby's situation, she doesn't have those, those implied permissions. She needs explicit, um, specific permission to do those things. I, I know when I was a teenager, I, I knew there were certain things that I could eat without asking, um, like leftovers or, or fruits and vegetables. There were other things that I knew I probably needed to get permission for, right? Um, you know, that, that dessert that mom just made, 
uh, I probably shouldn't be rushing in and grabbing myself a piece of that pie um, without asking. Uh, and, and so we understand there are different dynamics about how authority works and how authority is communicated. And you can be fully under somebody's authority, and yet there's some implicit permissions, some implied permissions in that. Um, and there are other cases where you need specific permission to act. Well, how does that work in our relationship with the Lord? Um, you know, do I need explicit permission from the scriptures to brush my teeth? Do, it's part of my life, and my life is fully under the authority of the Lord. Do I need to find book, chapter, and verse for playing a football game? You know, or, or uh, you know, writing poetry or playing a musical instrument. Do I need to be able, in every aspect of my life, to go find where God said specifically that I can do that thing? Well, I, I want to start in Genesis chapter 1, and I want us to try to think through how does this work? How, we, we know we want to completely honor the authority of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? And, and, and what areas of our life do we need explicit permission? And what areas may we have implied permissions? Uh, the, the first thing that I think we can see on the first page of our Bible is that God has granted us dominion over his creation. And thus permission to enjoy, explore, experiment, create, innovate, with his creation within certain bounds. Look in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the living things that move on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which is life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. You see, when, when God created us in the beginning, um, he is creator, right? This all belongs to him. He has ultimate authority here. Um, but God grants us dominion. God grants us a position of uh, authority. God essentially is saying, what, what's mine is yours. I'm, I'm going to entrust it to your care. He gives us some specific instructions. I, I want you to be fruitful and, and multiply, uh, to live in a way that reflects my image. Um, you know, th this specifically is given to you as food, perhaps at this point in creation that's implied that that's what you're supposed to eat, not these other things until it's later given. Um, but, but you see that, that God is granting us quite a few implied permissions here by the very nature of creation, uh, by, by granting us uh, this position of authority within his creation. We even see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19 that God brings all the animals to, to Adam and has him name them. He, he's granting him this position of, of leadership or authority. You know, this is somewhat similar. If, uh, last year, we had Claire come live with us for about three months. Um, you know, a, a young college-age 
uh, girl who came to our house, and the house never belonged to her, right? She didn't own the house. Her name wasn't on the, the deed of the house. But uh, by the very fact that we welcomed her in and said, you're going to be part of our family, you know, as long as you're living here, there were a lot of implied permissions about this. You know, our house is your house. She didn't have to get explicit permission to, you know, pour herself a bowl of cereal or, or get a, a towel out of the linen closet. Um, those were not her possessions, right? But we, we gave her that implied permission um, to, to live. In fact, we even gave her a room of her own that she could do a great deal you know, without asking our permission about it. There, there are similarities here in God granting us to live in his world and even to have a certain level of authority and dominion uh, over his world. Um, and so, by the very nature of creation, uh, we are given freedom and permission, implied permission, to do a great deal uh, with what God has granted. But that is far from all the scriptures have to say about this concept of authority uh, or permission. Uh, we don't just have a blank slate then to do everything and anything that we decide we want to do with what God has created. And if we continue here in Genesis, um, I think another very basic concept we see is all that God has created must be maintained according to his design. Permissions we have are within this design and not beyond it. Look in Genesis chapter 2. After God brings all the, the animals of the earth, um, he then creates uh, a, a helpmeet for Adam. Um, and Adam looks there in verse uh, 22. It says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Here, God is, is still granting Adam a great deal of authority here. Uh, he, he brings woman to him and allows him to, to name woman. He decides she's going to be named woman. But, but then there's a transition in verse 24, and it's no longer Adam who's speaking, but the Lord here is speaking, giving further instructions. Uh, and here he defines the relationship of marriage. That a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What can we conclude about marriage from this passion? What, what could we conclude about God's permissions and God's authority uh, in the design of marriage? Can, can we conclude that it must be between a man and a woman? Can, can we conclude that what it was intended to be between one man and one woman? Can we conclude that it was supposed to be a lifelong covenant? That divorce is wrong. Well, I think if we look in the New Testament, we see how Jesus approaches what we can learn from this passage. Look in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're going to start reading in verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What is Jesus appealing to here? He goes back to that passage that we just read in Genesis chapter 2 and what God says about marriage. And he says, this is the way that God made it. And you have no permission, you have no authority to change that. God made the two into one flesh. You can't tear them apart. You don't have that right. And so you see that when God creates something, um, that we need to honor his design that. Uh, and I think the other things that we talked about, it being between a man and a woman, being between one man and one woman, are, are implied restrictions within God's design there in Genesis chapter 2, just like divorce uh, is an implied restriction um, that God intended for these two to become one flesh. And we're, we're not at liberty to change that. that. That's not within the purview of, of our dominion to make marriage whatever we want it to be or to make male and female whatever we want it to be. When God creates something and God designs something, we can't come in and say, well, we decide we want it to be this instead. Uh, for example, talking about Claire living with us before. Uh, you know, giving Claire permission to live in our house didn't mean she had permission to start knocking out walls and remodeling our kitchen right? Um, If I let you borrow my car, that gives you permission to to drive it, right? And you don't have to say, Grady, can I turn on this street? Grady, can I turn on that street, right? No, you have permission to drive it. But you don't have permission to go and give it a new paint job, right? And so just because God has given us dominion and authority to, to use and enjoy his creation doesn't mean that we can make it something else than what he intended it to be. And you see that from the very beginning with God's design of of marriage, uh, we have to to use what he's created in a way that's in accordance with his design that honors his intent as the creator. We can't make marriage, family, gender, whatever we want it to be. We don't have that authority. Look in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as it describes uh, the sinfulness of the, the, the world at large, um, notice how it describes this process of, of sin and corruption. Verse 24, beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Well, what what things are not proper, right? I I thought God gave us dominion. We we can use his creation however we want to use it. Well, no. Obviously, in this passage, one of the main things that's being emphasized is that sin, by its very nature is taking what God created, what God designed, and twisting it and making it something else. 
Um, and that, that's the same problem that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 19 with the divorce. That's the same problem that Jesus is addressing here with those who uh, you know, were dishonoring their bodies. What, what does that mean, dishonoring their bodies? Well, they're using their bodies in a way other than what God intended for them to be used. They're taking the, the natural function, what God created them to be, and changing it into something unnatural. He's using this as an example because that, that idea of corrupting God's design, corrupting God's creation, is, is at the very foundation of what sin is. God created us to live in his image. And when we corrupt that image, that's sin. And so God gave Adam creation and allowed him to give it a name. He didn't give him a name and allow him to decide what he wanted it to be. Right? He, he brought woman, said, this is my creation, what do you want to call it? He didn't say, I have this idea, it's called woman, what do you want that to be? <laughs> Here, God, God uh, creates things and, and hands them over to us, but we're not at liberty to make them whatever we want them to be. That, that's one of the most foundational concepts of what it means to honor and serve the Lord, of what it means to, to sin and to corrupt his creation. Now, there are still some implied permissions in this, right? Uh, as we talked about marriage earlier, God didn't give an exact age for how old someone needed to be to get married. He didn't give an exact formula for, for how to choose uh, a mate. He, he didn't give a, an exact uh, you know, specifications on, on the, the dwelling place that this family needed to, to live in. Um, th- there are a lot of implied permissions and decisions that we... Uh, by God giving us free will and giving us his creation are able to make, but we can't make something God created into something else. And I think that applies to the church as well, right? What God designed the church to be, we can't make that whatever we want it to be. What, what God created, we're not at liberty to change. Uh, we, we can't pursue whatever mission we want to pursue as a church. We can't organize ourselves however we want to be organized. We can't make our assemblies whatever we want our assemblies to be. That's not how it works. What God created, we need to honor. We need to maintain according to his design. Now, we may have a great deal of freedom in, you know, exactly how we handle our our assemblies, what time we meet, where we meet, different things, Um, but we can't make what God created into something else. We don't have that permission. Uh, We don't have that authority. And along with that, if we continue in the book of Genesis, we see that matters of worship and communion with God are not within the realm of our dominion either. Look back in Genesis chapter 4. You remember Cain and Abel bring their offerings to the Lord. We don't know what they were told, what they were instructed about worship, but obviously they had some type of information here of what it is God desired of them. And in verse 6 and 7, Cain becomes upset because his sacrifice, uh, his offering was not um, uh, pleasing to the Lord. And so in verse 7, it says, then the Lord said to Cain, verse 6 rather, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Who got to decide whether or not Cain was doing well? Did did Cain get to decide whether or not he was doing well? You know, was it his 
preferences, his desire, what, what his picture of what this offering should be, that, that was the standard? Well, no, it wasn't. From the very beginning, we see this concept that when it comes to offering something to the Lord, that's not in the realm of our dominion. That, that's not something that we're able to make whatever we want it to be. God gets to determine what is pleasing and displeasing on the altars uh, of worship. You know, you want to prepare some meal on the dinner table for yourself at home. That's one thing. But if you're going to bring food to offer it on the altar of the Lord, different standards apply. It's not about you. It's not about your preferences, your likes, your dislikes. It's about pleasing the Lord. Uh, and, and as we talk about this, we need to recognize, you know, there's a sense in which certainly our entire lives are lived to the honor and glory of the Lord. You can say, in a sense, uh, our entire lives in that uh, way are our worship. But that doesn't mean every act of day-to-day life is a direct expression of worship, right? Uh, the, obviously, uh, different rules apply in, you know, me, me choosing what kind of toothpaste flavor I'm going to use, and me making decisions about what we do in direct acts of worship to the Lord um, together or as a family. You know, how we handle the Lord's Supper and how we handle our own dinner table at home are not the same thing. There is a difference, and the, the level of permission that we need to be seeking, uh, of, of explicit permission that we need to be seeking, um, than in you know, the realm of, of day-to-day life. And all of this, day-to-day life, the decisions that I make about my dinner table and my toothpaste flavor, all of that is under the realm of God's authority. Like we said, there's not any aspect of my life that is not under God's authority. But God's authority governs those two things differently. It's communicated differently. One of them has a great deal of implied permissions by the very fact that he's created us and given us uh, dominion over his creation. Whereas when it comes to a direct expression of worship, uh, I need to be seeking more directly, well, what is it that God wants? What is it that he seeks to receive from me? I think we can see this as well if we go further into the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus 25. Exodus 25, as, as the people of Israel are now out in the wilderness, um, and God starts giving them instructions about worship and, and communion with him. You see, he instructs them about the tabernacle. Starting in verse 8 of Exodus 25, it says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Was there a difference in the need for explicit permission when it came to the building and construction of God's sanctuary and the building and construction of their own family tent? Of course, right? Uh, Why? Were were they living their lives in their own tent kind of outside of God's authority? Well, no. No, it's all lived in honor to the Lord. But there's a difference here. There's a difference here in the level of specific authority that I need when it comes to God's dwelling place and my communion with him. Um, So think about it this way. Uh, Imagine that you were sent on a business trip for work. And while on that trip, the company paid for all your meals. Uh, You are purchasing those meals with 
the company's permission or authority. It's company money that's being used for that. But you don't need to okay every item you select from the menu, right? Now imagine, on the other hand, that your boss entrusts you with the task of catering a company event. Uh, it's just as much company money, right? No more or less with co the company's permission or authority, but would you perhaps have a greater need for specific direction, for specific approval and how you handle that? Or, or make it this way, Let, let's say your, your boss sends you to go get uh, you know, coffee for, for them um, with, with, with company money. Do, do, do you need the, the boss's instructions uh, to decide what, what kind of coffee he wants, uh, right? Th th there's a difference here, and, and I hope we can see it's not that one is more under authority and one is less under authority. Our entire lives and every aspect is lived under the authority of the Lord. But there's a difference in our need for explicit permission in some areas of life and service to the Lord than in others. Um, and so that's what we're dealing with when it comes to direct expressions of worship. It's not more or less within the realm of God's authority, but there are less implied permissions and a greater need for explicit permission when it comes to direct expressions of, of worship. But let's look at, at one other principle here. Um, on any matter where God has chosen to specify his will, we must submit to what he has revealed. Uh, the fact is, wherever God wants to step in and speak and say, this is how I want you to do it, he has that authority and he has that right. In Numbers chapter 2, after they've already been instructed about the construction of the, the tabernacle, Numbers chapter 2, God gives them specific instructions in the wilderness about how they were to camp. Um, and he, we see that Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were to camp on the east, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad on the south, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin on the west, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali to the north, and Levi in the middle. You know, this is something that we might have thought God would just kind of leave to them to figure out, right? This is their own dwellings, um, but he doesn't. He gives them specific instructions. Now, now could the Israelites step up and say, well, wait, 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 God, that, that's kind of our area. Um, you know, we get to decide where our own dwellings are. You can decide where your dwelling is. No. No, God still has absolute authority. And wherever God decides to speak, we need to listen. And we need to abide within what he says. He has that absolute authority. And so where he has chosen to specify and chosen to speak, um, suddenly we don't have implicit permissions anymore. Uh, we need to abide within what he's said. Um. And so he, he reveals some detail for them to follow here. And in as much as God revealed, Israel had to abide within his uh, design. They, they had still a great deal of freedom in the construction of their own camps or, or, or uh, you know, the, the construction of their own tents um, and, you know, how each family might choose to, to dwell within that. But as much as God revealed, they needed to abide within it. Uh, the fact is God can choose to specify wherever he wants to specify. Uh, it's not that giving man dominion over his creation has somehow placed our, our personal lives outside the purview of his authority. Um, you know, imagine if your boss entrusted you with a project at work, giving you permission to make your own judgments and decisions about it. 
And yet, at some point during that project, the boss stepped in and said, no, actually, you need to do it this way. Would you, would you step up and say, well, no, you, you entrusted this to me? Of course not. In the same way, God can specify whatever he wants specified. And so I, I want to look at one last idea um, that's going to apply to everything that we've talked about. And that's the question, is the silence of God permissive or prohibitive, restrictive? I think that entirely depends on what category we're talking about, right? God was silent about polygamy. God was, was silent about divorce in many ways, uh, at least uh, in Genesis. Um, he was also silent about the age that somebody needed to be when they got married, right? Some of that silence is prohibitive. Some of it is permissive. Think about it this way. Uh, God was silent about priests from the tribe of Judah. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, as it's talking about this change of covenant um, and Jesus being both king and priest, it says there in Hebrews 7:14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Was that silence permissive or restrictive? Well, well obviously, it's restrictive here. We, we couldn't say, well, he didn't say someone from Judah couldn't be priest, so I'm pretty sure he'd be fine with it. No, God's permission for priests to come from Levi and the descendants of Aaron implied a prohibition against them coming from, from any other tribe. Uh, and King Uzziah found that out the hard way. Uh, from the tribe of Judah, trying to go into the holy place and burn incense, he struck with leprosy for doing so. And so here is a case where God's silence is prohibitive. But on the other hand, uh, God was also silent about the height and weight of priests. Right? Um, could, it, could a priest be 4'11 and still be a priest? Could he be 6'1? Uh, could he be 120 pounds or 250 pounds? God didn't say anything about it. Is that silence restrictive? Well, no. No, here clearly, uh, this is kind of silly illustration, but it should be obvious that this kind of silence is not prohibitive but permissive. God spoke nothing about height and weight. So here we have freedom. What, what's, what's the difference? Uh, between these things? Well, I, I think the basic principle is where God has chosen to reveal specific instructions or patterns, anything beyond this is restricted by his silence. Where God has created something and designed something and said, this is what I want it to be, we can't add to that. We can't have polygamy, right? We can't dissolve that. We can't have divorce. We can't corrupt that. We can't have homosexuality, right? Where God has designed something, where God has spoken then his silence on anything else beyond that or outside of that or other than that is restrictive. Um, Leviticus 10 and verse 1, remember Nadab and Abihu took their fire pans and put fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. You know, God didn't say anything about this type of incense. You're right, that's a problem. <laughs> he didn't say anything about that type of incense. God told them what he wanted, and anything outside of that, anything beyond that, was restricted by his silence. So especially in the realm of worship, when God reveals to us what he wants, that's not up for innovation or improvisation on our part. We can't add to or subtract from it. We need to abide within it. God's silence 
is only permissive where no specifics are revealed, leaving a matter in the realm of our own free will. Where God hasn't specified what it is he wants from us, um, then we, we have a great deal of freedom. And, and let me say, it's not always easy to determine if God is intending to reveal a specific pattern or not. Uh, especially in the realm of biblical examples. We'll, we'll talk about this in a later lesson, but you know, partaking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. D- did God intend that as a specific pattern or not? Eating the Lord's Supper within the assembly, was that part of the pattern that he revealed or, or not? Eating the Lord's Supper in an upper room. Every time we have the space... Uh, that they partake of it specified it is in an upper room, is that intended as a a specific pattern that God is giving to us? Is silence about other emblems beyond the fruit of the vine and the the bread restrictive or permissive? And and so, you know, or, or is his silence about other days of the week permissive or prohibitive? We're going to have to do the difficult task sometimes of determining, okay, what is God communicating here? And what, what specifically is he trying to tell us? And is this a specific pattern he's leaving to us? Or is this incidental? You know, an upper room. Was that incidental? Um, or is that part of the pattern that he's left to us? But, but the basic principle that we need to grapple with and work through is where God has specified something. Where God has left us a pattern, left us a blueprint. We're not at liberty to change that. Um, he hasn't given us permission. There's no implied permission there to make it whatever we want it to be. And so we must be cautious not to assume permissions where God has, in fact, revealed his will on something. That's essentially what you have happening uh, in First Chronicles 15 and verse 13. Remember, um, David uh, assumes uh, that moving the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart would be just fine. Um, he, he doesn't, as he says here in 15 and verse 13, consult uh, God or, or seek him according to the ordinance. And so when Uzzah is struck dead because they didn't handle it the right way and he dishonors the Lord by, by touching the ark, um, David at first is confused. What's going on? Why? You know, we're trying to do a good thing here. We're trying to move the ark uh, of God to Jerusalem to be closer to us. What's the problem? Well, the problem was... God has specified how he wanted that to be handled. And and David and the people didn't listen to it, right? And so we need to be serious about seeking the pattern, seeking what it is God has revealed. Make sure that we're not assuming we have permission where we don't, in fact, have permission. Authority is not a minor or incidental topic in the scriptures. Um, And we should not despise the idea of being careful or diligent to make sure we have permission before we act uh, in different areas of our service to the Lord. You know, as a, as a child, um, there, there were times I was that child who uh, said, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure that it's okay for me to do that. Let me go ask mom and dad. That, sometimes that is a ridiculed idea. You, you have to ask your parents before you do that. You know, come on, right? Well, sometimes that's, that's the religious attitude as well. You need God's permission before you do that? You know, uh, this is a good thing. And we need to have the kind of heart that we recognize Christ has all authority. 
and I want to be pleasing to him. And I don't care what other people think. I want to make sure I have his permission. I think that's to God's honor and to God's glory. Um, that task is not always easy. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to determine what it is that he is intending to communicate to us. Um, but let's be serious about it. Because we want to please the Lord. Because we want to have Christ as our king. Because that's where salvation is. And so are you respecting and submitting to the authority of King Jesus in your life today? Uh, is the idea of submitting to authority an idea that you kind of chafe against? Or is it something that you embrace? Because you want to please the Lord. And you want to honor King Jesus. Um, if you recognize that, that you haven't been submitting to the authority of Jesus in your life, you haven't been seeking his authority and respecting it, uh, won't you make a change? Won't you change your attitude, your heart? Um, if there's some change that you need to make that we can help you with, uh, that's why we're here. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, you need to uh, ask for the prayers of these brethren or come to him for the first time, confessing your faith in Jesus as the Christ, uh, burying the old man of sin and baptism. You can be raised to live a new life as a kingdom citizen to the glory of God, a kingdom that's going to last for all eternity. If there's any way that we can help, you won't let that be known by coming forward as we stand and sing.